This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, specialist on national security and international affairs, Tom Nichols. He brings an expert knowledge of Russia and nuclear weapons to his writing as well as to the classroom, where he served on the faculty of Georgetown, Dartmouth, and currently the U.S. Naval War College. The expert who early in his career served as personal staff for security affairs for Senator John Hines is the author of a number of books, most recently, The Death of Expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. I wanted Tom Nichols to talk to us about what's going on with Russia lately, what Vladimir Putin is up to, and what we can expect to come as we go into fall. Well, the Senate, uh, in a bipartisan report, has said, I think, what we all knew already. And, of course, I should always add here, I don't represent the U.S. government or the Navy or anybody else. Um, But I think it's something... We all knew that the Russians were working with WikiLeaks, that people in the Trump campaign were uh, working through WikiLeaks and knew exactly what was happening and passing that up to the top of the campaign, including to the campaign manager. And one assumes to the Trump family and to Trump, unless I suppose they want to claim that they had no idea what was going on. But interesting, because this is a bipartisan report and it was issued by uh, the Republican under the aegis of the Republican majority, which controls that committee right now. Um, I personally was not surprised by anything in it. I think it's just one more report that just adds to, again, what I think Russia watchers and people who follow these issues already knew, but it spells it out pretty clearly and um, in far more detail even than the Mueller report did, which I think was just the nature of that that process. So, you know, here we are again with clear evidence that the Russians, WikiLeaks, people in the campaign were all working together to undermine American elections. So I wonder if you step back and you look at all of the reports and you look at all of the media coverage and you look at the amazing velocity of the changing nature of scandal after scandal and story after story. Uh, is there even a point to any of this? I mean, I, I I don't mean to sound cynical, but, you know, at a certain point you wonder, well, does anything the hell matter anymore? Yeah, I, I mean, I share your frustration and I feel that very keenly because it was only four or five years ago that uh, any one of these revelations, even a fraction of these revelations, would have been an earth-shaking scandal in the American government. Um, the president would have been removed or resigned in a better world, but I think it it um, tells you something about how worn down and numb we have become in the age of Trump that we get all this evidence of collusion, the word that we should have been using all along, and um, we simply shrug it off as saying, well, you know, what are you going to do? It was a bunch of bad guys and a bunch of clowns um, doing a bunch of bad things. Does it matter? Probably not. I don't I mean, we're, you know, as we're coming into the the autumn election season, I don't think there are that many people in America who haven't made up their minds, certainly not in terms of the Electoral College. 
I don't think there's any doubt about how California and New York or Alabama and Tennessee are going to vote. The, the real question is, does this move any votes on the margins? And my answer is probably not. Um, I think the Trump administration and Trump's hammering on the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth has pretty much worn down most people on the issue of Russia. And, and foreign policy doesn't really motivate a lot of people to begin with. So they're going, I think they're just going to hear this as more, you know, of just Russia, 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 and they're, they're going to tune it out, which I think is unfortunate. So I, I guess I'm in that kind of same cynical place that you are. <laughs> Why should we have been using the word collusion all along? That's something you said early on in, in your uh, phrases a, a few minutes ago. Why should we have been using the word collusion? Because that's what happened. And Trump, uh, and his courtiers, including the uh, attorney general, William Barr, uh, tried to gaslight everybody out of using that word by conflating it with conspiracy, which was the specific crime that Mueller could not prove because conspiracy requires a quid pro quo. It requires a handshake. It requires acknowledgement. And so because the Mueller report could not prove conspiracy, Trump's defenders tried to shout down the much more precise but much less legal term of collusion, which is knowingly uh, cooperating, even if it's at arm's length, which has clearly what the Senate report shows. It's what the Mueller report showed. It's what all the testimony showed um, to try to influence the American election. And I think um, we were I think a lot of people were buffaloed out of using that um, simply because. Uh, uh, they were shouted down. And um, I think this, you know, we're back to a, a report that shows obvious collusion in the sense that the Russians knew what they were doing. The Trump administration, the Trump campaign knew what the Russians were doing and encouraged it and welcomed it. We now have even more detail, I think, of clear efforts by the Trump campaign's senior people to work directly with Russians, some of them named in the report. I think we should have just stayed on that on that word all along. But uh, again, the people who defend the president are very clever. They're very good at it. And they managed to kludge together a bunch of words, some of which were accurate and some of which weren't until people were just exhausted with the whole thing, which has always been a, a strategy that's been used by this administration. It's just to wear people out and exhaust them until they could give up trying to understand it. You know, one thing that is unusual to me, and I'm not a professional I'm not a professional politico, but I read and I ask questions and, and I, I try to keep an open mind. But one thing that's interesting to me is that as we have gotten closer and closer to the fall election here, 2020 fall election, we seem to be hearing less and less about Russia. Let's just pretend that the Senate report hasn't come out yet up until now. You know, I, I get there's a virus, we're in a pandemic, there's a lot to cover. But don't you think that Russia has been less and less in the news in the past few months? This summer, again, acknowledging there's a lot going on. But as we approach the election, I feel uh, there's been rather pale, weak coverage of Russia in many mainstream news outlets. I think what you're seeing comes from two things. Part of what you're seeing is the American media is just not good at covering foreign policy in general. It, the American public has no interest in it. They don't like it. It bores them generally. And so media coverage about foreign affairs tends to be to be right where the public wants it to be. 
Now, you know, obviously there's really good coverage in places like the Washington Post and uh, the New York Times, but the average person is not going to take the time to slog through that. And that's been true for decades. I mean, that is not something that is new. I think what's new is that the Trump team has exhausted people on the word Russia by, by again, by a relentless hammering on the idea that there is any such thing as truth or that anything is knowable. And so even when the story came out that, again, in any other administration would have been a gigantic scandal that the Russians are actually putting bounties through the Taliban on American servicemen and women overseas, the Trump administration just decided just to not talk about it, which is re- remarkable. I mean, to th- you know, this, again, would be a kind of earth-shattering story in any other, uh, in a better government and in a better country, quite frankly. But I think, again, because it included the word Russia and because it, the president and his administration have managed to wear people down on the word Russia, people heard, okay, Russia, the Russians are doing something bad. The administration says, no, no, this isn't happening. It's not, you know, the things you see with your own eyes are not real. The intelligence community can't be trusted. And um, and they get away with it. And uh, I think, you know, there will come a time when there will be fuller declassification and more people will come forward and talk. And I think we're going to be shocked by the degree to which we looked away from a lot of things that the Russians were doing um, that we should have been paying attention to. But I think some of that is... The American tradition of just not caring, the, the American public's tradition of not caring about foreign policy, and some of it has been the very specific wearing down, kind of creating a tone deafness about that one word, Russia, because the president has been so effective in hammering the idea that you can't believe anything that comes from that and anything related to that um, to that word. So you talk about the American sort of what unwillingness or or just a lack of interest in foreign policy. And I recognize that it's probably true. It seems strange to me. It seems seems very hard to understand for me. I guess I've been traveling abroad my whole life. I mean, I was, you know, I celebrated my first birthday in Amsterdam with family, friends and things. So it's, it's sort of being curious about other lands, other countries is sort of second nature to me. And uh, there's a big, fascinating world out there. Why don't Americans care? Is it because many Americans don't have a passport, will never leave the country? Is I mean, what what is it? It's a question that has frustrated people who study American foreign policy for years. Uh, because and and actually, it's a bipartisan or uh, a bipartisan concern or a concern that spreads across all political orientations. Because people on the left feel that, and I think rightly, feel that. The American unwillingness to think about foreign policy leaves decision makers with a lot of latitude to go on military adventures. Um, people on the right, understandably, get frustrated with the public's unwillingness to think about foreign policy because it makes things like building coalitions and funding the Defense Department and keeping things like NATO together just not – these are not things the public cares about. And so the And so American foreign policy tends to reflect – a kind of permanent bureaucracy and foreign policy class in in Washington, D.C., purely by default. And I actually don't say that as a criticism, because I think most of those people do a pretty good job. But as a citizen of a democracy, I find it very discouraging and very discomforting that they do their jobs almost without constraint or interest from the American public. Now, why is that? You know, there's a lot of historical reasons. We're surrounded by two big oceans. 
most Americans, as you say, you know, don't travel a lot. And if they do, it's nearby. It's also come from a years of a sense of security that, you know, the rest of the world isn't really a danger. Um, I think, you know, in a place like Europe, when you've had two wars in one century with people that you, you can, you can drive to their country in an hour, you tend to pay a little more attention to these things. You know, when they're still pulling unexploded bombs from World War One out of the ground, there's an immediacy uh, to foreign policy. But Americans, as one political scientist put it years ago, Americans treat foreign policy like the plumbing. They just expect it to work. And then when the pipes burst and they're up there, up their hips in water, that's when they get mad. That's when they start take, paying attention again, when something goes wrong. I think that is just part of the insular nature uh, of the American public. And I think it's, it's deeply unfortunate and it's led to a lot of problems, but I don't think that's going to change anytime soon either. What's interesting about it is that I always run into people who are big Trump supporters in places you'd never think particularly. I mean, not, well, I was in Buenos Aires in January in a concert tour. One of the last times there was, you know, musicians from the States playing abroad. And, and I remember meeting a group of young people at, at a bar and, and they said, well, who would you vote for? And, you know, I, not, not the first thing I like to get into. Turns out that they're rabid Trump supporters, you know, young, you know, middle twenties. And, and I find these people all the time. And, and I, I wonder, I wonder what, and obviously there are waves of similar uh, nationalistic views in what Hungary, Turkey, Philippines, Brazil, but place it in a, in a bigger context. Well, I mean, this is partly the effect of, I think, a sense of relative deprivation and the aggravation of class tensions around the world. I mean, I was in a casino in London and a guy, you know, just like you, you know, I didn't, not, not the first thing I want, especially when I'm, you know, not working and I'm just trying to concentrate on um, whether I should take that next card, you know. Well, you're trying to win some money. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, trying to, no, no. in my case, when I'm gambling and just trying to lose it slowly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, this this guy next to me at the table, he's like, "Oh, you're a Yank." I says, "Oh, right, you're good, good on you for what you know. You, you, you Americans, you know, you've bloody well, you know." And I said, "Yeah, I don't really see it that way." And he said, "Oh, what's not to love about the about that guy?" You know, and I said, "Yeah, I said he just got there because this was early on." And and I, what you came to realize when you talk to some of these people, and I think it's the same thing that happened with a lot of folks here in the United States is they didn't love Trump. They love the idea of Trump. They love the idea that somebody was going to come in and just completely piss off the, you know, powers that be, um, whoever they are, you know, the nebulous elites. I brought up the issue of the casino because the guy next to me was not broke. I mean, you know, I knew what he was throwing on the table. This was not somebody, you know, this wasn't, um, you know, somebody driving a truck and complaining about the way he was being treated in, you know, the streets of London. This was a guy who was laying out some cash. But it, I think it, it comes from this notion that people around the world have come to believe that there are other people who just run things and they need to be discomforted somehow and that they just kind of enjoy the spectacle of somebody coming in and aggravating People who are educated, people who live in cities, people who are, I don't even want to say it's a left or right of center, people who are comfortable within the existing establishment. And so it's not a surprise to me that a bunch of young people in Buenos Aires 
would say, oh, it's really great that Trump's walked in. If you if you think for whatever reason that there are people living better than you and looking down on you, which I think is an important part of the Trump phenomenon, then you love the fact that there's a guy who just stands there and says shocking, disgraceful, disgusting things because he's now your your advocate. Instead of asking why is it that there are people who might look down on me or, you know, what is it that I believe that may be virtuous or not virtuous? They just say, good, I'm glad some guy is in there just raising hell and making other people unhappy. I don't think it's about economics. I don't think it's about standards of living. I don't even think it's about foreign policy. Um, you know, you hear a lot on Fox News about they've they've now retreated. The, the people who, who are the usual kind of Fox Trump cheerleaders have retreated to set phrases like globalists and endless wars. But one of the things we've learned from four years of Trump's policies, in so far as we could call them that, is the people who support Trump don't care about any of that stuff. I mean, nothing's changed. Three and a half years, there's really been almost no, certainly no change in the power or economic relations between rich and poor, between the foreign policy establishment and everybody else, between the permanent class and D.C. I mean, there just there has been, if anything, the swamp has gotten swampier. But that's not what people care about. They just want to see somebody stand up there and say offensive things because it appeals to their sense of resentment. And I think that explains not only Trump, it explains Erdogan, it explains Bolsonaro, it explains to some extent, it explains Orban. This is just, you know, the result of a lot of interconnectivity and farming of grievances by political entrepreneurs, in, in my view. So people are railing against against intellectuals, against globalists, against people who, quote, control everything and, and revolting in a way. And there's a sort of a tie into your book here, which is called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And let me just set the scene very quickly. You're in chemistry class, which was your original major college in Boston. I come in, I'm a cellist, I come into the classroom and I say, Okay, class, I'm here to teach you freshman chemistry. You'd all laugh me out of the room before I finished a sentence. Why isn't that applicable <laughs> to every situation everywhere? I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, so I should get out. People find it very disempowering now to admit that. There was once a time, I mean, look, people never like eggheads and intellectuals. This is something I always say at the beginning of any talking, anytime I talk about the death of expertise. You know, nobody, nobody likes professors. And, you know, we're, there's, there are reasons for that. You know, we're not the most sociable group in the world. What's different now is that when there were people that used to accept the division of labor as a real thing without feeling threatened by it, you know, they could say, well, my doctor told me I have to do X and I don't trust my doctor. So I'm going to go talk to another doctor. And, you know, that was a normal reaction to expertise and authority. I want to get more opinions or I want, you know, more information. What people do now is they say, I feel unequal. I feel disempowered and unequal. And again, looked down upon because my doctor is telling me that he's not going to argue with me about vaccines, that I just have to vaccinate my kid. 
So I'm going to be, I'm going to empower myself and I'm going to say, I know as much as you do. And that's become a theme in not just an American life, but I would say in the developed world. Um, when I wrote the book, I thought I was primarily writing about America. I will not so humbly brag and say that the book is now in 12 foreign languages, which I'm, I'm proud of, but it also scares the hell out of me because I didn't think it was that global of a problem. I thought it was primarily an American thing. So that, but that is a, that is, goes back to that Trump encounter you had and the one I had of, you know, it's just satisfying to turn to people who might have put you in a position of feeling disempowered and saying, you can't tell me what to do. You're not smarter than me. You're not better than me just because you're smarter than me. I know stuff too. And, you know, it's childish. I mean, it's childlike to to say, I, I've had literally had people say to me, well, you know, doctors got that thing about eggs wrong. And it just proves that doctors don't really know anything. They don't really know about heart disease. They don't really understand anything. Because, of course, that's very comforting in that moment to say, I don't have to listen to anybody. I can eat cheeseburgers for breakfast. Why not? That That is a, a, a kind of reverse evolution away from political and social maturity back to basically being a surly eight or nine year old. But that is the that is the society we've created, a very narcissistic, self-absorbed, me first kind of society that says I have to have my say, even if I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, a lot of the things you allude to, I can apply to sort of the stereotypes of, uh, how do I put this delicately, woke, spoiled, millennial, I'm a millennial, by the way, brats, you know, who who are entitled, and how, how dare you insinuate that you know more, but then, again, a lot of what you say, I can also uh, apply to the to the right, in a way, I mean, the, for sort of a different way, just being sort of offended, I'm picturing a stereotype, again, speaking in stereotypes, offended that, that you have a degree and I don't, so... It's both, or what? What is happening? Don't, don't think for one minute I'm letting the uh, the uh, young millennials uh, off the hook here, because one of the things that I point out in the book is that universal high school graduation and huge rates of college attendance, certainly compared to even when I was a kid, have convinced people that they are smarter than they are. They say, "Well, I went to a university and I got A's." Which, you know, does not mean what it used to mean. It doesn't mean in 19, in 2020 what it meant in 1950. It just doesn't, there is not the same intellectual horsepower behind that. Let me just pause you for a second there. Do you think that's because, first of all, people are so empowered in a way that, you know, my mom and dad are going to come in and talk to you if you give me anything lower than an A, or, or also, how, how dare you hurt my feelings by, I mean, I'm not using the word, that that I was accused of using by a, a Amherst College professor recently, and I won't even say it. But I, I don't mean to say that that people are so uh, delicate. But in truth, I, I I do hear about the curve. The word I've used many times is that it's a therapeutic model of education. It it values your feelings over what you know. We don't ask students what do you know. We ask them, are you happy? Are you enjoying this? Do you like college? You know, is everything to your liking? Is, you know, is the pizza in the quad okay? And in part, that's because colleges have had to compete, become more and more competitive for a, for a shrinking pool of students. But it's also because of a change in social mores that says it is 
impolite to tell people that they are wrong. And it is destructive to our self-esteem. And I think this goes back to our culture of narcissism, that it's 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 destructive to a student's self-esteem to say you're wrong. You know, and I've been teaching for a long time and doing it pretty successfully. You know, there is a delicacy uh, uh, among students that I think is matched by older people, which is you can't tell me I'm wrong. Um, if you say to someone you're wrong, they immediately respond with, are you calling me stupid? No, I'm saying that you're wrong. I'm saying the world isn't flat. I'm saying that, you know, vaccines do work. And you have to be able to listen to that without making everything about you. And I think, unfortunately, education over the past 40 years has produced a lot of very delicate and very entitled students who, I mean, I've had students walk up to me on the first day of class and tell me that they have some recommendations for changing my syllabus. I mean, it's just a kind of wow. remarkable sense of confidence to say, you know, Professor, I was looking at this syllabus and I have some thoughts here about stuff we, we might want to cover later in the term. And, you know, to which my answer is, you know, thank you for your interest in the course. You, you can sit down now and let me get started and perhaps maybe have a little faith that I know where this is going and we can get to some of those things. It is, it is, I think most of my colleagues in the teaching profession, some of them don't. I, I, if you got pushback, I understand that. I mean, I've gotten that as well. I've had pr- fellow professors say, well, I've never encountered a student like that. But I think those are professors who also say things like, I learn as much from my students as they learn from me, which I think is the sign of bad teaching, if that's true. It, it was a very a well-known, just to, to put a finer point, a very well-known professor of jurisprudence at Amherst College who, who accused me of calling his students snowflakes and he said, my students are tough. They're not snowflakes. I'd never used the word. But I, I, I was just trying to say maybe there's, we were talking about free speech. And as you know, that that's a big thing that <laughs> comes up a lot with college campuses. I, I should say, by the way, that I've been teaching both graduate students and undergraduates for a long time. And I, I love teaching and I love, um, you know, being in the classroom with my students. But tough is not a word that I would use for most of them. I think that they can, they become tougher over time as you teach them. And you can teach them to engage in the rough and tumble of discourse. But it is also a culture, you know, there is a trophy culture. It is a culture where every student has been told that his or her opinion is very important and matters a lot. And, um, you know, I think most, as I was going to say, most of my colleagues, at least privately, I did a piece, uh, an excerpt from the book in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I was flooded with letters from from colleagues all over the country saying, you know, thank God somebody finally said it out loud because I'm just, you know, stunned by what I deal with in the classroom every day. Uh, Professor Tom Nichols, as you know, this program is called Talking Beats, and while music isn't the focus, I always try to bring in music a little because it, it's something everybody listens to either casually or intensely. Oh, what about you? What's music do for you? <laughs> well, a- as you know, I have taken hatred social media because um, I I don't like Led Zeppelin. I made the mistake of saying that I would rather listen to the to the first Boston album over and over than anything Led Zeppelin's ever recorded. So my opinions on music are probably not really welcome. But I will say that what music does for me is I, I like most people who enjoy music. I find myself transported in time and place. I generally don't listen to music as wallpaper the way some people do where they just put something on and, you know, they can just not pay attention to it. I find that almost anything that I have on that's musical um, commands my attention, whether it's classical music. I actually 
became as a teenager a huge fan of Baroque music and Bach, or whether it's just bubblegum pop from my childhood, I pay attention to it. So I find that music engages me at, at any time that it's on, and, and um, that I think has been a great gift over the years that I've really been grateful for. Well, anything you would say about music is welcome here because I, I try to run a, a censor-free zone. Um, and I wouldn't personally pillory you, uh, at least not until I, I went on social media and and uh, became anonymous. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Professor Tom Nichols, I wonder, you've written a lot about Julian Assange. You've talked a lot about Snowden, Edward Snowden as well. Are we going to have a Julian Assange this election, this fall, this winter? What's going to happen? It's already it's already happening. I mean, the Russians are already flooding the zone on social media. It won't be through Assange, but it's the usual Russian uh, mischief on Facebook and Twitter. And the most important thing I can say to anybody listening is, if you really want to defeat all of this Russian chicanery, there's a very simple answer. Don't get your news from Facebook or Twitter. It's that simple. If everyone listening to us and, you know, people throughout the United States simply stopped getting their information from memes on Facebook, we would be a much healthier democracy overnight. And, you know, because the Russians can't change your vote. I know that there is this, you know, urban legend out there that the Russians got into voting machines. Look, you know, Wisconsin was all paper ballots. There there were not armies of Russians roving Wisconsin. You know, if you really want to empower yourself and defeat this kind of interference in an election, just stop getting your news from places like Facebook. So it's it's already happening. Um, The president's already made it clear he would welcome such help. You know, so I think it's just it's just part of the cost of doing business in this election and might be forever simply because you can't shut out the rest of the world when it comes to things like information. But you don't have to fall for it and you don't have to put yourself in a position where you're susceptible to it. You've been studying Russian chronicling and reading about and, and really becoming familiar with the innards of Russia, pre-Russia, of the Soviet Union for a long time. So has Soviet Union slash Russia changed much or is this just same old, same old? I think there's a big difference between the Soviet Union and modern Russia. I know it's kind of fashionable to say, you know, Putin is just the Soviet Union reborn. And he is a man of his time. I mean, he is a... There's this expression of Savok, a a Soviet guy, because he was raised in that system. But what he really is, is a mafia don. And if you really want to understand the new Russia and, and the one place it was a lot like the old Soviet Union, the leadership is a mafia. But there is a big difference. It's not a mafia with a globe spanning ideology. It is not a global imperial. It doesn't have global imperial reach the way the old Soviet Union did. I mean, in a sense, we pay a lot of attention to Russia when what it really is, is a kind of middling regional power that happens to have nuclear weapons um, and a very weak economy. And so I think in the, the old Soviet Union was a, was a existential threat to the, to the democracies in a way that Russia is not. Russia is a mischief maker. They want to corrode democracy in the United States, particularly in Europe. But I think we have to stop thinking of them as the old Soviet Union and that they were all 10 feet tall. Putin's a mafia done. He does what he does. Uh, and again, you know, we don't we don't have to fall for it. We don't have to put ourselves in a situation where we're susceptible to it. But do we have a choice? Uh, I mean, do we have a choice to fall for or not to? Or is it too late? We're infiltrated. 
Well, I think for people who have doubled down on reelecting the president since 2016, they're just never going to believe any of this. And I think, um, you know, I gave up years ago trying to argue with them. My advice to people has been that you're, you're simply going to have to outvote them. So in that sense, the Russians have already won. They've already induced chaos and uncertainty in the American electoral process in a way that I've never seen in my entire life. But for the rest of us, no, you don't, it's not a done deal. You can step away from uh, Facebook. You can choose to only follow, you know, reputable sources and journalists on Twitter. You can read a newspaper. I think if the average person read a newspaper for 30 minutes a day, instead of spending hours trolling through, you know, Facebook memes, people would be a lot happier and they'd be more well-informed because they wouldn't be constantly bombarded by ads and links that are meant to literally meant to infuriate them and engage them with rage about American politics based on outright falsehoods. So, you know, my, my best advice to people, turn off Facebook, open up a newspaper, use Facebook the way I think responsible Facebook users do, which is to say hi to your friends from high school and share, you know, cat pictures and recipes. What are you working on right now that really excites you? I know you're teaching, probably virtually. What what, what projects do you have that, that excite you? And also, if we can turn to uh, sort of the flip side of that, what are you worried about, really deeply, deeply worried about in the short term and the long term? Well, I'm working on another book, which is both a joy and a chore. I am no Voltaire, but as Voltaire once said, books are never finished. They are merely abandoned. So I'm trying to write another book about the problem of democracy in the liberal democracies and how we've become a threat to our own system of governments because of our own behavior, because of our own selfishness and our own narcissism and our own unwillingness to debate facts and to think about things in good faith. So I'm working on that. It excites me. It depresses me. Um, eventually it will have to be abandoned and sent to the publisher like all other books. The thing that I think worries me the most in the near term is that in three months, the president is almost certain to lose an election, which I, you know, I'm knocking on wood because, of course, no predictions 100%. And my real concern is that in those immediate days just before and after, he will do everything he can to burn down the American system of government rather than accept a loss. And he, the damage he will do on the way to the election and on the way out of the White House could be substantial and even enormous. And that that really worries me a lot. Well, Professor Tom Nichols, I hope you're wrong. And time will tell. Let's see what happens. I thank you so much. Love to have you back sometime. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.